This is Whitley Strieber, and this is Dreamland. You've reached the edge of the world. Well, it has been almost a year since our current guest has been with us. I have in my life three remarkable astrologers, Tashi Power and our own Trish McGregor, whose uh, mystical underground podcast is carried on Unknown Country as well, and Ray Grass. And Ray Grass and I have had now quite a history together. Uh, we did a, a Dreamland, a number of Dreamlands, and the latest one is in September of last year. And he also did an astro astrology reading for me that was truly remarkable. I took down notes as to what he was telling me about what would happen and what the situation would be at various uh, points in my life and put them in my calendar. And boy, did it unfold that way. Ray Grasset is a Chicago-based writer, musician, photographer, and astrologer. He worked for 10 years at Quest Books in the Quest magazine. He's an associate editor of the Mountain Astrologer. He received a degree in filmmaking from the Art Institute of Chicago. Uh, he was under experimental film pioneer John Brackage, who I admired enormously, and John Luther Schofield. He studied with various teachers in both the Kira Yoga and Zen traditions. He has lectured extensively, and you can probably find him from time to time on the lecture circuit. Uh, besides his own books, he has create, committed, uh, contributed to many anthologies. And today, we're going to be talking about his new book, which I don't have with me. Yes, I do. When the Stars Align a book of reflections, and they are remarkable reflections. You can reach Ray at raygrasset.com or raygrasetphotography.com. He's also a marvelous photographer. So, Ray, uh, w welcome to Dreamland. I'm glad to have you here. Glad to be here. Thanks. Well, wonderful. Uh, Okay, now I'm going to start with I think some first the stars when the stars align is a huge journey. Ray has taken quite a life journey, uh, and uh, it started out uh, with horror stories. <laughs> it's a surprising <laughs> question, isn't it, Ray? Uh, but I read these books. I don't just do interviews. I'm into this very deeply. And uh, so tell us how you went from horror stories to mysticism. Well, I've often um, half seriously said that uh, horror movies and horror books, monster movies and all that was my gateway drug into mysticism and the occult. Because unlike, let's say, war movies or just violent films, horror movies had that element of the other, uh, the, the ethereal. And so there was always that fascination in what is hidden, what is the mystical, the metaphysical. So when I was growing up in the 60s, there were all of these Roger Corman films, you know, the Vincent Price films, and I write in the book about meeting Vincent Price as a 13-year-old, which for a 13-year-old kid into monster movies was like, you know, meeting Jesus. And uh, it segued from there. And I also, the other thing that influenced me about those films was the extraordinary photography. Like at Carl Freund, uh, the great German cinematographer, directed The Mummy, and he had also done in Germany, films like M, I believe, and Metropolis, and you know, the photography. So those films had a huge impact on me in a lot of ways. And from there, it was a natural step in my teens into reading about, like, Morning of the Magicians, that book, or books on astrology, and uh, various books uh, of the 
the Tompkins book on the Great Pyramid and so on and so forth. So to me, it felt like a natural progression going from those metaphysical types of films and stories into esotericism and, and metaphysics. So uh, d- tell us a little bit about uh, the, uh, the the last uh, show we did was about your book, Facing the Shadow. And I see some of that now in your early life, which I did not know about. And you have a comfort level with the shadow, I would say, that that is something that is gained over years. It's not something that we're, we we start with. I, I know facing the shadow has been a very big part of my life, and I think most of my listeners are probably on a similar path. Why don't you tell us what you mean and what your experience is of facing the shadow? Well, it, it, it ties back to the first question about the horror films and that sort of thing, and I suppose some of that, uh, when you're younger, my mother was actually very, very concerned about, uh, my, my attraction to horror and gruesome sort of things. And, um, and I think some of that is dysfunctional, but another part of it is a, a fascination with, like I said before, the other, the dark side in all this. And I think as I got older, it moved into a healthier sort of approach to that. And it, it was also a fascination, I think, by symbol, symbolic correspondence with the unconscious, with, um, with psychology, with the hidden forces of life. And that's where astrology is so fascinating because it shows you these internal archetypal dynamics, the hidden dynamics of everyday events and psychology. And uh, so it really grew out of that what at first seemed to be somewhat extreme. Um, I, I tell in the book about, uh, my dad was a carpenter. He worked on construction sites in the city in Chicago. And I, I asked him to build me a coffin at one point, a, a plywood coffin, and he did. He was very kind and very generous, and he wasn't as worried about my sanity as my mother was. Maybe he should have been, but he built this for me. And so there was this, fascination with death, with dying, with what happens when we die. And, uh, and, and like I say, the, the, the horror films, uh, Vincent Price, Boris Karloff and all that, they were, they were an opening into that. And I think it's very easy for a parent to misjudge that, understandably so. It's, it's in some cases it can be, I think, a dysfunctional sort of thing. But uh, it grew from there into a fascination with, in particular, Jungian psychology and uh, symbolism. You know, that's the other thing. A film that had a gigantic impact on me when I was a kid was I happened to catch on TV a a screening of Hitchcock's Spellbound. And you may remember, I'm sure you do, the dream sequence by Salvador Dali in that movie. And... That absolutely entranced me because I realized that was my first conscious grasp of symbolism, of, of how images could speak in a language deeper than words, because there were, there were floating eyes in the sky, and there was a man running down the side of a pyramid with the, a shadow of a giant bird overhead. And these didn't make any sense from a logical standpoint, but they, they clearly spoke to something deep inside the, the mind, inside the psyche. And from there, I became very interested in Salvador Dali and surrealism and uh, symbolism. In my first book, The Waking Dream, uh, was really about symbolism, and the subtitle is Unlocking the Symbolic Language of Our Lives. And it was really the fruit of many years, actually several decades of study with yogis and mystics and occultists about, and indigenous peoples, about how is our everyday life reflective as, a, as, a, as above, so below, but also as without, so within. What is the secret kind of language of events in our lives and you know, what's the deeper layer? You don't want to get too obsessed with that. You know, I think you know a lot of people go through that stage early on where you become overly you know, scrutinizing every little thing. But you grow out of that, or at least 
I'd like to think most of us do. And um, so that shadow, that's a very big umbrella that covers a lot of different things. It's, it's um, you know, we tend to think of it as being in the conventional Jungian sense, that which we don't want to face in ourselves. But I, I use that term more so in terms of all of those things that are kind of hidden that we normally don't pay attention to that are underlying our everyday psyche and our everyday life or the events in our lives. Does that answer your question at all? Oh, absolutely. It's a fascinating answer to the question. Uh, I, uh, and I think that, you know, we're, we are needing to find our way when confronting the shadow. And essentially what the shadow is, is the discovery of death, which happens in, in mid childhood. And all of a sudden I realize, wait a minute, what just happened to granny is going to happen to me. I am going to die. Uh, so, and then the shadow comes and we have to come to terms with it. Every single one of us does. My wife used to say, we're here to live, Whitley, but we're also here to die. And, you know, it's not, in our society, we think of death as a sort of catastrophe, but it isn't. It is a culmination of very, very different thing. Now, I want to m- move on to... Excuse uh, me, can I possibly interject something there yeah, that I think is really important? Uh, that's a beautiful segue into what's happening in America right now. Because one of the things that I wrote about three years ago for Mountain Astrologer, and it's, it's a chapter in my book, Stargates, the United States right now is undergoing its Pluto return. And in fact, this week that we're talking, you and I, is one of the trigger points for this energy. And Pluto has a lot to do with the shadow. It has, to lot, has a lot to do with the hidden, the, the, the legacies of the past that we don't want to face up to. And right now, America, and this is what I was saying three years ago in the article from Mount Astrologer. It's on astro.com. If you type in my name and Pluto return, you'll find it. America is having to face a lot of darkness in its own soul and a lot of the unresolved legacies of its past, including slavery, the treatment of indigenous peoples, also corruption. One of the things I predicted in that article was that it could see, uh, one of the seven things I predicted was it could see the fall of very prominent people, whether that be politicians or celebrities, in terms of things like treason or uh, sexual scandals, things like that. And uh, and also the same day, in fact, that this last trigger happened, which was uh, July 11th, just a few days ago, was the same day as that first photograph of the James Webb telescope came back which was very shadowy in the sense of we were unveiling hidden depths of the universe that we had never seen before. When Biden got up there that first day, they showed that one photograph and the next day they revealed other ones. There's a lot of ways in which we're all having to confront the shadow. And I think gun violence is a big part of it in terms of there is a certain innate violence in the American soul, even though, you know, we don't like to think of that. And uh, so a lot of these old things are coming back now and, uh, you and I have a mutual friend that's involved in uh, some Native American things right now and uh, wounded knee and trying to bring things to light that uh, have been forcefully kept from view. And I think that's all part of this. And the Native Americans and the, the school children that have been found uh, buried and dead and all this sort of thing. So I wanted to mention that before you move on. I apologize for interrupting you. It's not an interruption. I I was moving in that direction anyway, because I think it's very important. You know what I want to do is uh, let's go let's go back to another planet, uh, Uranus, which is you mentioned in the book is associated with this era. And can you maybe it will begin to build a larger perspective, and then we'll get back to the situation in the United States. And we might also talk about the UK too, if you want to, because uh, we have a load of listeners in the UK and I'm sure they'd be interested as well in, I mean, in that Boris Johnson has recently had his tent pulled, o- pulled off of him in 
I wouldn't say he's folded this tent. He's more been left with no tent and sort of had to wander off this, wander out of the campground. But in any case, let's start with a description of the relationship between, I want to say in a big way, between the reality of modern times and that planet Uranus. Well, you know, the other curious thing is that this decade not only sees the U.S. Pluto return, but the U.S. Uranus return, which happened during the Civil War, for example. So there are several indicators that are pointing towards a lot of upheaval in America. Of It's not just about violence. It's about rethinking the American experiment in terms of what that's about. What's the old saying about before the Civil War, the United States were, after the Civil War, the United States is, or something like that, this idea of figuring out who we are as a nation. But Uranus as a general principle has to do with modernity, with technology, with media. The discovery of Uranus in 1781 uh, was really, in my opinion, there's no single date for the birth of the Aquarian Age, but it was a significant pivotal point of the 1770s, the 1780s, 1790s. And uh, in, in our first talk many, many years ago, after my second book came out, I mentioned about how uh, there was a Uranus return the same month as Roswell in, in 1947. So that was a huge kind of tectonic shift. And you had asked me when something to the effect of when's the next one. And I said, that I, I think 2031, 2032 in that ballpark. And so we're coming into this period of secrets being divulged of, I think, major advancements, although it could also be, Uranus is also automation. It could be, it could be like James Cameron movies with, you know, the artificial intelligence, you know, developing its own power and, you know, robots taking over. It's interesting in the 1700s, you had uh, automatons, you know, it's, it's you know, these uh, robots made to look like humans. So a lot of what we're seeing happen right now, in my opinion, is this shift between the old age and the new age. It's like the Piscean age and the Aquarian age in the sense that like the abortion debate is a classic example of this. And I'm not taking sides here, so I'm not trying to ruffle feathers. But it's really a battle between a religious paradigm and a secular paradigm. The Piscean age is explicitly religious in nature. Excuse me. And the Aquarian Age is secular. It's somewhat materialistic, although I don't see that as intrinsically bad. I think that it, is, it doesn't have to be divorced from, from spirituality. It's just that it is more secular. And what we're seeing in this battle between the pro-life forces and the pro-choice forces, which is coming to a head very strongly right now, um, and that's also tied into the Pluto return, I think that that's this battle between ages, a battle between fundamentally different paradigms. And I, I don't think there's really a compromise between the two. I think ultimately the Aquarian age wins out. It doesn't mean the Piscean age forces die out. It just means that they, they don't have the upper hand, though they may seem to right now in America. But um, so that that's that's... If that's not quite getting to what you're asking about, please press me and I'll try to elaborate a little or clarify a little no, bit. No, this is very uh, interesting. And, you know, I didn't realize that uh, Uranus was discovered in 1781, which was, of course, the pivotal year of the American Revolution. Basically, that's the year that the Articles of, uh, of Confederation, not the, not the Constitution, yeah. were adopted. And by the end of that year, the British were f basically finished in America. 1781 and, is when Cornwallis surrendered at Yorktown. That's exactly right. You and know. so uh, now what's interesting to me is this. I want to segue a little bit here from the the relationship between what's happening to uh, on Earth and, and the, the planets as if, and ask you this question, if Uranus hadn't been discovered then, would the world have happened differently? In other words, is the discovery itself part of the strange power of astrology? And we're going to talk later, folks, about what that power is, because Ray knows a lot about it. And having seen it work in my own life, I consider it incredibly fascinating and mysterious. But I have 
good news and bad news. The good news is communion is out in audiobook at last, read by me the whole book. And the bad news is that Free Dreamlanders, you're going to have to hear more about that and more about some other wonderful things right now. We will be right back. Have you ever read Communion? Or have you never read Communion? It's out in a new edition. Very powerful, a subtly new cover that reflects the fact that the visitors are now looking back at us because they truly are. You can get it from the unknowncountry.com store as a Kindle, as a beautiful, sumptuous paperback, or as an unabridged audiobook read by me. It's the first time in the whole life of communion that it has been read in full in audio format. And believe you me, I felt that reading. I put my life, my memories into it, and I trust you can hear it in the voice. I sure felt it while I was reading. So get communion, listen to it, read it. Communion is of central importance to all of our lives. The UNX Network delivers quality paranormal programming, video and audio streams, all kinds of shows. Jimmy Church is there. Dreamland is there in the free version. So go to unexnetwork.com and you'll receive your monthly newsletter, blog access, event notices, and a free digital copy of their quarterly magazine. How can you go wrong? Check it out, unxnetwork.com. We're talking to Ray Grasset, his website, simple to remember, raygrasset, G-R-A-S-S-E dot com. Uh, you can find Ray there. You Ray offers uh, uh, readings, which I have done. And <laughs> I had a great time. I'm telling you, it was a very useful reading, including the parts that were mentioned as dangerous periods. I'll give you how exact that was. Most of you remember that I uh, was um, had my apartment entered and uh, was it was things were molested? Nothing was stolen, but apparently my computer was hacked. And the next thing I knew, whoever had entered this apartment had gotten into the website and was trying to destroy it. Fortunately, unknown country has been there and done that. And we have a lot of security, deep security, and they they weren't able to do much of anything except indicate cause us to notice their presence. That happened. On a, in, in, in a period of time where Ray had warned me that there would be things that, 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 that could happen. And that warning had come six months before in his reading of my chart. Ray's new book is When the Stars Align, Reflections on Astrology, Life, Death, and Other Mysteries. Uh, you know, Ray is a, uh, he's a sort of a hidden master, really. I mean, I regard him as a master, and uh, but you don't think of when you think of masters, you think of uh, the Dalai Lama and or people like that. But you don't think of Ray Grasset. I think you should listen very closely because there's an enormous richness here. Now, before we left the air, we talked just briefly about the relationship between the discovery of astronomical objects and their astrological significance. And Ray, can you uh, talk, speak to that? I think you might have some really interesting things to say. Uh, most astrologers tend to think that the discovery of a planet is very symbolic and synchronistic in terms of some awakening of a new state of consciousness in the collective and people often like I've often done, you look to what happens around the discovery of the planet. Uranus was 1781. Uh, Neptune was around 1846. Pluto was 1930. And you see some uncanny correspondences around those periods historically to what was going on in the culture, um, 
in the culture to what that planet came to mean. And But I think it would be a mistake to think that it's an entirely new state of awareness in the collective as far as when it's discovered as when it actually first appears in the collective experience, because that's not true. Um, if you look back to when, for example, uh, Richard Tarnas in his book Cosmos and Psyche talks about these outer planet patterns through history. So there was this extraordinary lineup of the outer three planets, Uranus, Neptune, and Pluto in the 6th century B.C., which historically was a, a turning point in history, the axial religions and so on. And yet none of those three planets were consciously known at the time. They weren't discovered till, you know, like I said, 1700s, 1800s, 1900s. So they were still active, but when they become discovered, when they are visualized, when they are actually photographed, for example, or seen through a telescope, I think they become more of a conscious sort of presence, one that can be utilized more. So when the discovery of Uranus happened in the late 1700s, principles of freedom, uh, the Industrial Revolution, capitalism, 1781 was also a very important year in terms of a turning point in philosophy with Immanuel Kant and so on and so forth. So um, now the big question is, is there going to be a new planet discovered in the next few years because scientists, astronomers have been uh, talking for quite some time about, you know, is there another planet out there, planet X? And um, I'm I'm watching very carefully. There's sort of a heavy debate whether it really exists or the findings, the irregularities in other planets and asteroids indicate something else out there. We don't know. But if something is discovered, we're going to look very carefully at what happens when it actually is discovered, what's going on in the culture, and so on and so forth, and then slowly watch it in people's horoscopes to try to make sense of what it means. So that's that's kind of how I would answer your question. There is um, the reason this it's believed that this planet is somewhere out there. It could even be, interestingly enough, a uh, uh, a little, a tiny dark star. Because of the reason we know something is out there because of the way that its gravity waves affect the outer solar system. We just can't find it. So it's it's not a question of there was a long period of time when there was a lot of debate about Planet X that went a bit off the rails. But this is not off the rails. It's out there. Something is there. Do you, think, so. do you think the fact that we know that something is there might itself have some effect or not? Uh, yeah, I think, um, I, but I really think when it becomes actually seen and photographed is the turning point, when it becomes really conscious. I think it's always, for example, in 1930, that was when uh, Pluto was discovered. And you see the rise of the underworld, you know, Al Capone and all this sort of thing. You know, Pluto has to do with the underworld in a lot of ways, symbolically, in the unconscious, in the shadow. But you see... I mean, the underworld came roaring out, excuse me, in, in the form of Nazism. Boy! Oh, no, yeah. and, and Pluto also rules autocrats, it rules dictators, and so on. So absolutely. But it was building up through the 20s, if you see what I'm getting at. In other words, it was slowly, I think, coming up to the surface of consciousness, and then in 1930, boom. And by the same token, going back to your question, I think that whatever is out there is is slowly rising up to the surface, and we're feeling it, but we can't quite put our finger on it yet in terms of what it means. We will when it's discovered. I think that we're going to have a much clearer sense of it, especially as we you know, see what sort of events happen around the weeks, months, and year around the actual discovery. You know, I, I don't recall ever having or hearing a discussion of astrology quite like this. I think this is absolutely fascinating. I wonder if you've ever tried to identify any of the subtle signals or signs of, uh, of what kind of influences this mysterious presence out there might, might be leading us to if, if we do find it and it emerges. I've thought about that a lot, and I, I haven't come up with anything yet that's really specific. I wish I could, because so much of what's going on, 
I can attribute pretty much to other things right now, such as the Pluto return for the U.S. or Pluto moving through Capricorn um, and, and Pluto and Uranus coming up to its return point in the next 10 years. So it, the, the tricky thing as an astrologer is sorting out what are you, how much of what you're feeling or seeing or sensing is due to this influence versus that influence, and because sometimes they overlap. There sometimes can be a confusion over whether something is Neptunian or Plutonian or Uranian. So I haven't been able to figure out a way to de- determine what this new planetary archetypal influence is. It's, um, I wish I could tell you. I'm fascinated to find out. I have an idea, Ray. Yeah. It's, maybe it's the coming of the visitors. It could well be. Yeah, because that has been sort of under the surface for a long time, kind of percolating, and it's a real outlier. I mean, literally, just like the planet. And uh, maybe the discovery of that planet will si- will signify the discovery of the visitors as well. I think that could very well be, and part of the reason I believe that is that uh, if there is another planet out there, it's way out there. It's past Pluto. Way out, exactly. And I think that's symbolic in terms of the further out in space, that's a further out into the depths of the darkness of space. And symbolically, that coming to light has to do with hidden things coming to light, kind of like what's happening for America right now with the Pluto return. So the further out you go, I think, the further out, galactically you're kind of reaching i think that there could be some contact it either is going to be like we're seeing with the james webb telescope seeing further out into space but it could also be making contact with intelligences that are further out if the visitors are in fact ets and not let's say interdimensional or time travelers or something which is an open question for me oops (laughs) yeah an open question for me too i agree with you uh now, let's go on to one of the fascinating films, things in the book is your, your relating of the media and entertainment to, uh, to this whole process and of, 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 of revelation. And, and I see astrology as being an ongoing process of revelation where we are finding the closer we get to a clear understanding of our relationship to our place in this, in this vast mechanism, uh, the, the more is revealed. So let's talk about awakening, and, which is a very interesting aspect of your book and of your whole work in life, in fact. Uh, the... Uh, I think maybe to quantify it or to let's talk about films first yeah. now, that you, you know, we, we could talk about uh, the films that, that, and that you, you speak of in the book and the way they reflect the age. I thought that material was fascinating. Well, a good example of that was uh, that Netflix film last fall, um, Midnight Mass, which, as I say in the book, I think was the Citizen Kane of horror films. It's just a brilliant work. I think it's six parts, seven parts, I forget how many. And it has multiple levels. Uh, unlike, uh, there's not many films of that genre that have that multiplicity of you know, interpretations. But one of those, without giving away too much of the plot line, has to do with what we said before about the shift from the religious age, and a specifically Christian age, into a more secular and scientific age and the battle that's taking place between those. And it also, by the way, applies to what's happening in America because the, the show came um, out last fall right under a major activation of Pluto, which was affecting the U.S. Pluto return. So it, had, it was an American production, basically. And so it had a lot to do with, I think, America having to face its its own shadow side, as well as its religious shadow, because the movie deals a lot with the kind of the dysfunctional aspect of religion and the dysfunctional aspect of of Christianity, if I could be honest. So that's one example, but there's many examples. And I talk about Citizen Kane as well, 
in terms of embodying certain themes, both ex- both explicitly as well as implicitly. Explicitly, the heavy focus on the media in Citizen Kane. The whole movie revolves around this kind of tabloid journalistic, you know, uh, prying into people's personal lives and the intrusion of media in our private lives. On a more implicit level, it t- there's all this, this, the subtlety of that film in terms of it's very decentralized. The storyline is not straight linear. It's it's decentralized the narrative in terms of jumping all over the place. It's also decentralized in terms of the, it's not a, a singular viewpoint, a God's eye view of the, the character. It's like a, a person's view from a person's personality from many different uh, viewpoints that are chronicled throughout the film. So there's many examples, I think, of how media reflects the, the dynamics of what's happening in the zeitgeist, especially astrologically and even in this broader sense of the great ages. There's a wonderful film, another Netflix film called Mank, which is about about oh, yeah. Joe Mankiewicz and, and the making of Citizen Kane, and and it's not in the film, but there's a open. It's no secret. I'm sure a lot of my listeners already know this that the word rosebud, which starts the film, was <laughs> a first secret. Uh, secret name for his for Marion Davis's uh, private parts, and when he heard that, he apparently in his mansion and in Xanadu, uh, he he uh, the Hearst Castle, he leaped up and rushed out of the room immediately. He was absolutely floored and horrified because it meant to him that she'd spilled the beans to Mank and. And then he kicked Mank out of the house and out of his life forever. Um, In any case, uh, that's a little side aside there. Uh, And what we're going to do, speaking of asides, and the reason I'm segueing around instead of keeping to the subject, is to lead you free dreamlanders down the primrose path to these commercials. Have you ever read Communion? Or have you never read Communion? It's out in a new edition. Very powerful, a subtly new cover that reflects the fact that the visitors are now looking back at us because they truly are. You can get it from the unknowncountry.com store as a Kindle as a beautiful, sumptuous paperback, or as an unabridged audiobook read by me, it's the first time in the whole life of communion that it has been read in full in audio format. And believe you me, I felt that reading. I put my life, my memories into it, and I trust you can hear it in the voice. I sure felt it while I was reading. So get communion, listen to it, read it. Communion is of central importance to all of our lives. Where is the unknown country? Is it out there in the stars? Or is it also somewhere else? Is it in us, in you? unknown country join us today go to unknowncountry.com right now and join us join the questions join the search join the adventure unknowncountry.com there's no place like it in the world We're talking to Ray Grasset, his new book, When the Stars Align. His website, raygrasset.com. You can sign on there for an astrology reading. Uh, I have had one. It worked for me very well. And uh, so I would say it's an endorsement, definitely. Now, Ray, there... 
we are, I think um, I want to talk now about something you call the principle of octaves in uh, in astrology and the way and 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 the significance of symbols because the thing that's so fascinating about getting under the surface of the way astrology works that's why I wanted to talk first about things like the discovery of Uranus and Pluto and the the mysterious possible influence of planet X already hitting us um, under the surface of astrology, you begin to see a structure. So can you tell us about the principle of octaves? Because I think that's a very important part of understanding the hidden structure of astrology. Yeah. Uh, any given symbol or symbolic pattern or configuration can manifest on different levels. It's one of the key principles of occultism and metaphysics. And uh, so the same principle can manifest in a very crude way and also in a very subtle way. And using astrology just as a, a starting point here, you know, what is, is Pisces a good sign or a bad sign? Well, it's a nonsensical question. It depends on who's wearing it, so to speak. So on the one hand, you have people like um, John Wayne Gacy, but you also have Michelangelo. And um, there's... there's many levels at which you can express an energy. Or you take the example of Charlie Chaplin and Adolf Hitler were born basically the same week in 1889, I think it was, and uh, with some very similar patterns in their horoscopes. And and they look the same. You know, you really you take away the bowler hat on um, and the, the haircut and the mustache and all that is similar between the two men, and yet, and one even played the other one in a movie, The Great Dictator. And so they, they, they had this commonality of an archetypal substrate, you might say, but they obviously went in completely different directions with it. And you see this all the time in, in astrology. It's, I did a chart for someone born within minutes of Donald Trump, and uh, their lives were entirely different, but there were certain patterns that were the same. And I won't go into specifics. But um, you know, it's when it comes to the Great Ages, for example, is I read these simplistic takes on the Aquarian Age. It's going to be all good, brotherhood, love, you know, the lamb lying down with the lion and all that sort of thing. Or other people that describe it more as an Orwellian sort of uh, you know, bureaucratic machine world. And uh, it's not one or the other. It might be all of the above. And if you look to the Piscean Age, for example, it was everything over different centuries in different places. At the same time that Europe was in darkness, the, uh, the Islamic Empire was, was doing quite well. And you know, it, this simplistic tendency that I think people have to try to boil it down into a monolithic reality. And, um, and so the Aquarian Age, is it's, it's going to be, I think, on the one hand, it could be a wonderful, it's a time of great scientific exploration. It's a time of great technological advances, like, like Thomas Edison, uh, Steve Jobs types. But it could also be a time of uh, bureaucratic uh, impersonality, you might say. It's, it's not one or the other. Uh, does that address your question at all? Yeah, I think it does. I, uh, I'm what I'm looking for is something about this hidden structure. But I'd like you to amplify your comments about the Aquarian Age because, of course, in my day I saw hair, and I, you know, I was looking forward to the Aquarian Age being fairly cool uh, in, in a lot of ways that young, sort of semi hippified boys welcomed. I'm not a young semi-hippified boy anymore, but I still want to be free. Tell me, tell us about your vision of the Aquarian Age. I think that uh, it will be to a certain extent what you're saying, but it's not going to be exclusively that. We've already seen, when you compare the world now to where it was, let's say, 100 years ago, in terms of, I mean, it's not perfect, but... When you compare it in terms of women's rights, in terms of our understanding of the universe, 
civil rights, etc. It's 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 really a huge advance when you look at the number of democracies that were in the world back in in 1781, uh, and look at it now. There's problems. There's autocracy rising up around the world, but it's I think it's overall a very positive trajectory. Uh, but that doesn't mean we can ever you know, stop fighting in the sense of uh, you, we can't get too complacent because there's always that backward tendency to kind of backslide into the old ways of doing things. And you see that right now in America. You see this tendency to try to like deprive us of our rights or you know, whatever. So I think that it's a fantastic time in a lot of ways, but I don't think, you know, this is the earth plane after all. I don't think there's ever a time when it just is a walk in the park. I think it's, there's always challenges. So expecting it to be kind of a utopia, I think, is nonsense. But I'd much rather live in the world we have now than where it was, let's say, in the, the 16 or 1700s. And by the same token, I'd like to believe that 500 years from now, yes, there could be problems, but I'd like to believe it's going to be the rights will have expanded. There will be more understanding of psychology and of nature and so on and so forth. But it's not uniform. That's the thing we've learned from the last few ages. What may be great in one part of the world may not necessarily apply to every other part of the world. It's like a, it's, it's a bit like a global whack-a-mole in terms of you know, the enlightenment factor. You have a very interesting um, segment in the in, in the book about the Beatles and their, them being avatars of the Aquarian age and what that means based on what they were and what they did. And I think to get an idea of the good things we can expect about, about of the Aquarian age, why don't you talk to us a little bit about the influence of the Beatles? But Free Dreamlanders, yeah. wait, 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 I'm not sure. finished. Free Dreamlanders, uh, I'm not finished. And I'm not finished because it's time for you to see some more commercials. So sit back and enjoy them. They're going to be incredibly cool. But what would be even cooler for you is if you didn't want to have to watch them at all. Become a subscriber. Come on, do it. It's not expensive. It's easy. We have PayPal. We have credit card signups. And one thing we don't have is many questions about how it works or or things going wrong because it works very smoothly and things don't go wrong. So enjoy Dreamland and Unknown Country more deeply and join our fun community. If you look at the comments all over the website, it's a wonderful social media place, a lovely place. It, you know, we don't have trolls. And so if you want to troll, troll elsewhere. We'll be right back. Have you ever read Communion? Or have you never read Communion? It's out in a new edition. Very powerful, a subtly new cover that reflects the fact that the visitors are now looking back at us because they truly are. You can get it from the unknowncountry.com store as a Kindle, as a beautiful, sumptuous paperback, or as an unabridged audiobook read by me, it's the first time in the whole life of communion that it has been read in full in audio format. And believe you me, I felt that reading. I put my life, my memories into it, and I trust you can hear it in the voice. I sure felt it while I was reading. So get communion, listen to it, read it. Communion is of central importance to all of our lives. There's a new world coming if we can take it. What does that mean? The first part of the message is if we can take it, for ourselves on our own terms. The second part of the message is, can we bear the newness and the huge expansion of human consciousness that is going to be involved? Can we take it, a new world, 
It doesn't mince words. It tells the good, the bad, and the ugly like it is. And it leaves a message behind. Can you do this? Do you want to? Do we have an alternative? Right now, at this point in history, mankind is either going to get a lot bigger or not. I choose to go forward. I choose to live for and in the future. I choose the future. A new world. We can take it. Available in hardcover, softcover, audiobook, and Kindle. We're back talking to Ray Grasset. When the Stars Align, Reflections on Astrology, Life, Death, and other mysteries, including the significance of the Beatles that we'll be talking about in a moment. Uh, Ray's website is raygrasset.com. On his website, you can sign up for a reading, an astrological reading. I had one. It was excellent and very useful. I urge you, if you do that, take notes, dates that will be there, and they will be in, if they're my life experience with this was any any sign, the dates that he mentions will be important to you. Okay, Ray, let's talk about one of everybody's favorite subjects, uh, the, the Beatles, and good Lord, what incredible music. Living through, we're older guys. Ray and I both lived through the advent of the Beatles, and I can assure you there has been nothing else in music, anything like that. It was like an atomic bomb of sheer joy exploded into the world. That's a good way to put it. Um, when I refer to the Beatles as avatars, I mean that you know more metaphorically. I don't mean they literally were, although who knows? I think avatars can take many forms. Avatars being the technical definition is direct incarnation of God. Well, we're all direct, direct incarnations of God, you could say. But uh, why did the Beatles galvanize global culture the way that it did? It obviously plugged into something very profound in the zeitgeist, in the collective unconscious. And I think that has a lot to do with, they were in a sense, vanguards of the coming Aquarian age in several ways. One of which was uh, it was, it was, there's so many ways to go about this. They were a collective, they were a group, which is an Aquarian thing, but they were a group with individual personalities. They weren't faceless. We knew John, Paul, George, and Ringo. And that was not something most people, if you said, who are the uh, backup musicians for Frank Sinatra or Elvis Presley? I doubt if you know one out of a hundred could name the actual performers behind those individuals. Whereas everybody knew the names John, Paul, George, and Ringo, which is a different collective from a Piscean collective. Both the Piscean Age and the Aquarian Age have to do with collectives. But if you want to think of the Piscean Age in a form of music ensemble, it would be the Gregorian choir, where there's you're not supposed to express your individuality. You're, you're faceless. You're anonymous. In the in your aiming towards a religious ideal as well, whereas the Beatles represent a more kind of jazz ideal where everyone has their own voice in the choir. There's an individual creativity is encouraged. That's one part of it. It's a new kind of collective ideal that was not there to the same degree in the Piscean Age and earlier ages. It also represents a shift in terms of global culture. They had a global impact. And uh, I remember watching when they did All You All You Need Is Love, and it was a satellite hookup, and it was seen by countless millions of people. There was that sense of plugging into this, this kind of mass consciousness at the time. There was also this sense of um, secularism. I remember the time that uh, John Lennon made this comment about the Beatles are more popular than Jesus. And he didn't mean that in the way that it was taken by most people. He meant simply that they were, in fact, more popular amongst a lot of young people than Jesus. 
And that was, to me, that happened at a very pivotal time, 65, I think it was, when there was the Uranus-Pluto conjunction. It was a very profound, profound tipping point, the mid-60s, astrologically, in all sorts of ways. And him saying that, it was a few months after that, the Time magazine had that cover, Is God Dead? This shift from a religious culture to a secular culture, they embodied that. And also the sense of freedom. The key thing, it wasn't just an explosion of joy, an atomic bomb of joy, like you said. That's true. It was also a new sense of freedom. As a young kid at the time, going to see a hard day's night, there was this sense of a liberation of, of kids doing whatever they want. I mean, that could go obviously in a in a, the wrong direction, but there was a whole sense of personal self-expression that really hadn't been experienced in the culture as when the Beatles came out. And that's very Aquarius, you might say Aquarius Leo polarity, that sense of, of freedom. And that even had a huge impact on global politics. There are a number of historians, including Russian historians, that believe that the Beatles had a huge impact on the fall of the uh, USSR because of the young people getting bootleg versions of Beatles albums and, and getting a whole sense of a new way of looking at the world and uh, and that filtering percolating up from the lower levels of the culture, which actually reminds me. Another part of what the Beatles represent, they were work, so-called working-class heroes. It wasn't, it was a new dispensation. It wasn't like uh, royal bloodlines of people inheriting the crown, so to speak. It was people rising up from the working class, from the bottom up, which is very Aquarian. You know, Leo at the top of the, well, top is relative, but Leo at the other end of the zodiac is more royalty. Aquarius is more kind of the people. It's people power. The Beatles represented people power to a certain extent. So on a number of levels, as well as spiritual because they really brought in this global spirituality. The Beatles brought in a sense of uh, Hindu uh, yogic spirituality and meditation that had only been there in slight ways before that. So there was this, you know, this cross-pollination of global cultures that happened as a result of the Beatles that had been building up for years beforehand, but the Beatles just it was turbocharged at that point. So those are a few of the things I feel that the Beatles represented. You know, uh, you know, you mentioned the Rolling Stones in the book, and I'm—I was very interested in that because of a personal thing. I, when I was living in London in the '60s, I was a little not a groupie. I didn't know any of these people, but uh, there was a flat uh, that, uh, and the pheasantry was owned by. Era, I guess, rented probably by Eric Clapton. And it was a sort of open house. Uh, you could go there if you knew about it uh, and you knew people who were going there, and I did, and hang out. And all kinds of cool things would happen there, including the occasional appearance of big rock and rollers. Because Eric at the time was just just becoming, the cream were just becoming big. And it was an exciting time because he would, he would be there every once in a while. And he, he, I saw him once get a phone call from the U.S. about his album sales of his first album there, and boy, he was, it was a big celebration. Anyway, it was all a lot of fun. Uh, and But I thought of, I felt a sense of a shadow with Mick Jagger. There, there was something there, and I know that uh, there was a, there was a, a, a a group, I believe, called something like the Process of Church of Final Judgment. And there was, he got, he was sort of interested in the dark side. So what was his place in this, in this change, in, in this movement into the Aquarian Age? Because I do think he has one, and I just don't understand quite what it would be. The, the, the stones were kind of the shadow side of the Beatles. And uh, my friend Gary Lockman uh, wrote a book called, I think, I don't know if the new title, it was, it was a new edition, uh, Turn Off Your Mind, The Dark Side of the 60s, something to that effect. Brilliant book. And on the one hand, you had the Beatles representing that light, bright, joyful side. Uh, and then on the other side, you had the Stones, and Mick Jagger has a very strong Pluto in his chart, by the way. 
He had a born with a Pluto, Sun, Jupiter, Mercury, uh, all tightly compacted in his horoscope. So he represented that kind of dark side. Uh, and so, yeah, it's it's at the same time, the same year in 69 that you had, what was it, um, Woodstock, you had Altamont, you also had, uh, I think, uh, Charles Manson and the Manson murders. So it's, there was, whenever you have this eruption, I have an article about this in an earlier book, um, but whenever you have this eruption of light in the culture, there tends to be also a corresponding, like you can't create matter without creating antimatter. It's almost as though the darkness is there too. And it's, it's, the 60s is the perfect example of that. You had extraordinary things happen musically and spiritually in the 60s. You also had that darkness. You had the riots breaking out in cities across the U.S. You had violence. You had the assassinations. And you had you know, Mick Jagger talking about the devil and all this sort of thing. So there was an ecology happening then that brought in all those different elements. And Jagger was an element, kind of the high priest of that dark side. And so was, you know, we've talked before about our mutual acquaintance, uh, Kenneth Anger. And uh, he also, and he had a connection to Jagger, as you know. And, um, you know, it was all there. It was all there, both the light and the dark in the 60s. Yeah, it it, it was all there, and it, it still is all there. I, I want to ask you about all the gun gun stuff that's going on. I mean, you we not only do we have it in the United States, like a like a spreading cancer. Uh, but it's even happened in Japan and in Copenhagen of all places recently. And what is going on? And is there an astrological significance to it? I can explain it in terms of what's happening in America. I don't have any simple explanations for why it's happening around the world, though it does seem the epicenter is America. And so it does, maybe it has to do with, you know, we're the leading edge of what's happening in the culture. So as America goes, so goes the rest of the world. I don't know why it's happening elsewhere. Um, I certainly believe in America it's because of this Pluto bringing up this hidden violence. And there is violence in the United States horoscope, uh, strong Mars. Um, and also there's also, I have a theory in my second book, Signs of the Times, about how the Aquarian age is an air sign. It's, it's a, air is very intellectual, very mental, but there's usually a shadow, a hidden darkness to air because it's, it doesn't, it's not comfortable dealing with emotions and that can erupt up in the form of unresolved violence. So it may have to do with the ushering of the, in of the Aquarian age. I, I don't have a simple answer for that. Well, free dreamlanders, we have come to a sad place. It's the end of your participation in the show, and it's a particularly sad place because we're going to be talking with Ray about something you do not expect, and I'll tell you what it is. I'm not going to keep it a secret. It is the strange story of Erwin Fortman as it connects to the Roswell incident. You'll never have heard anything like this before. It is in many ways the most illuminating story about the high strangeness level of the whole close encounter phenomenon that I know I've ever read. I was, it knocked my socks off. So we're going to be talking about that in just a minute. But before we go and leave you behind forever, Free Dreamlanders, I urge you to subscribe as always. And every week, actually, lately, some of you have been doing that. And I've gotten some lovely emails saying, I'm sorry I waited so long. This is so much fun. And it is fun. Uh, we just had Ann Tyler on uh, on our uh, chat. We'll have other chats in the future. And we have a weekly, uh, a, a weekly chat room that I'm usually in. And we have a lot of fun in the chat room. Uh, there's wonderful social media on the site at, at many different levels, some of it free and some of it uh, uh, for subscribers only. It's just a lot of stuff and it's a lot of fun and it's about the future. And Dreamland is a terrific podcast, frankly, 
Uh, I love doing it. I've been loving doing it for over 20 years. So stay with us. End of story. Ray's new book, When the Stars Align, and it is worth exploring the whole body of work of Ray Grasset. It is a tremendously wise and accomplished body of work of the utmost seriousness and, and this is the great part, the utmost fun. He's fun to read, really fun to read. RayGrasset.com. Go there, get up your courage, sign up for a reading, and you're probably going to be fairly amazed. Ray, it's great having you with us and subscribers. Let's go to the deserts of New Mexico right now. You've been listening to Dreamland. Be sure to tune in again next week. Dreamland is brought to you by UnknownCountry.com and its family of subscribers. Our theme music is The O of Pleasure by Ray Lynch. Unknown Country was founded by Ann Streber. Our news editor is Matthew Frizzell. Our coordinator is Amy Safrankova. Whitley Streber is your Dreamland host. And I'm your announcer, Ted Alexander. <laughs>